I still remember it as the, the happiest day of my life, the 19th of April 2008. Yes, the day I married my best friend and sweetheart, Beth. Ah. I still remember standing at the front of the church in uh, South Carolina and then the doors at the back swinging open and, and Beth walking in looking a million bucks. And it was just this uh, breathtaking moment uh, for me, you know, swirling with all of our love and, and hopes and dreams. Over the years, I've been to quite a few marriages, and I think that that same joy is present for most people on their wedding day. But, you know, the statistics suggest that those feelings rarely last. In just uh, two months' time, Beth and I, we will have been married 12 whole years, uh, which, believe it or not, is actually the average length of time that a marriage lasts in our country. We'll keep you posted. (laughs) In Australia, the fact is, one in three marriages will actually end in divorce. And, uh, you know, it's these sort of statistics uh, that can turn uh, people off marriage in the first place. And so it is that far fewer people are actually getting married today here in Australia than even 10 years ago. So as Christians, uh, what are we to think about marriage? You know, is it good or is it bad? If we're single, lots of singles here tonight, how how can we prepare well for marriage? if that is God's plan for us in the future. And if we are married, how can we strive to have marriages that not only endure, but flourish? Well, to answer these questions, tonight we're going to look together at the story of the very first marriage, the marriage between Adam and Eve. And you can find that um, in Genesis chapter 2, which is on page 4 of the Church Bibles, if you've got one of those. Now, of course, so far in Genesis, uh, we've seen how God has created all things. And he's declared it all very good, just as he wants it. And that's why it's so striking that God now looks at the first man, Adam, and and declares that actually there's something that's not good, uh, the fact that he's alone. He's, after all, uh, created in the image of God. And among other things, that that makes Adam a social creature in need of companionship. But, but, But more than that, God has given Adam a very important job to do. Do you remember? Do you remember? To rule, to rule over the creation and take care of it. But obviously that's a job that's way too big for just one man. And he's going to need some help, including someone to help him be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, as he was commanded to do in chapter 1. And so God commits to providing Adam with a helper, just right for the job. Here, read with me, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So now, of course, the obvious question is, who exactly will fill this role? Because at this point in the story, there's just Adam and the animals. And whilst that makes for a really cool rock band name, the question remains, will he find a suitable helper from among them? So God brings all the animals to Adam with a couple of objectives in mind. Firstly, to see what Adam will name each of them. You know, giraffe and uh, eagle and baboon. It's his first chance to exercise his God-given authority over creation. But he also wants Adam to discover something. That, that not one of these animals is a suitable helper for him. Here, read with me from verse 19. Verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky... 
He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the animals, they're all, they're all brought to Adam. He names them, that they pair up, and they frolic off together. And, and I'm sure that as they do, Adam increasingly feels his aloneness all the more, as clearly there is no match among the animals for him. Though I dare say he was rather relieved to discover that he wasn't having to take home this little uh, beauty. Um, <laughs> woo! But obviously, obviously if Adam is going to have to, if, if he's going to have a suitable helper, well, that helper is going to have to be tailor-made by God. And so that's exactly what God does. God makes Adam fall into a deep sleep, takes out one of his ribs, closes up the wound, and then he forms the woman from the rib and gives a life. Then like a, a father walking his daughter down the aisle to her groom, God brings the woman to Adam. Uh, here, read with me from verse 21. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And how does Adam feel when he sees his wife for the first time? Well, he is ecstatic, absolutely delighted. So much so, he bursts into poetry. Yes, the very first Valentine's poem, which could easily be titled, My Perfect Match. And what makes the woman perfect for Adam? Well, the fact that she's the same, but different. She's the same, but different. Yes, unlike all the animals, this woman is the same, the same, the same kind as Adam, the same species, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And so they are equal as human beings created in the image of God, created for deep fellowship with one another and with God. She's the same. But she's also gloriously different to him. Not, not just different physically, but in all sorts of other attractive ways too. Now, together, they can reproduce and, and fill the earth and get on with the job that God has given them. Yes, she's perfect because she's the same but different, which means that the man and the woman, they complement each other with their differences, not creating conflict, but joyful harmony. You know, it kind of uh, reminds me of uh, my favourite line uh, from that world-renowned philosopher, uh, Rocky Balboa, uh, in his first movie, Rocky One, uh, when he says to his girlfriend, Adrian, and, and I paraphrase, oh, I got gaps, oh, you got gaps, we fill each other's gaps. You know, surprisingly, given the source, it's actually profoundly true. And it's exactly what Adam has now discovered here in the garden too. Here, read with me, verse 23. Verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now, significantly, one of the differences we see here between Adam and his wife is a, a difference in roles. Did you notice? 
we see Adam naming his wife here. It's an indication of his God-given headship in this marriage. A significant point to remember for next week when we'll see things go pear-shaped. But what's really obvious here is the fact that Adam is absolutely delighted with his new wife. She is his perfect match. Now, at this point, the, the narrator breaks into the story to make a very significant comment. He says that this first union between Adam and Eve sets the pattern for all future marriages. And in particular, he points out three fundamental features of marriage that flow from it. Leaving one's parents, being united, and becoming one flesh. Firstly, our marriage involves leaving parents. In other words, it's designed to supersede all other relationships. And so it requires a, a shifting of priorities and primary loyalties away from one's family of origin and towards one's spouse. Secondly, marriage involves a husband and wife being united. That is, permanently stuck together. In other words, marriage involves a lifelong commitment to one's spouse. Till death do us part, as the classic marriage vows put it. And finally, marriage involves a husband and wife becoming one flesh. That is, they're to give their whole selves to one another, as reflected in their new sexual relationship. Here, read with me verse 24, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You see, this, this is the pattern for marriage set in the beginning. And it's a good one. Good one, providing security and stability for the couple and for their future children and for society as a whole. And then at the end of this first wedding, we're left with a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture. Though not the kind you'd find in a typical wedding album. At least I hope not. It's a picture of Adam and his new wife together, naked, and feeling no shame at all, no, no embarrassment, no fear, no suspicion, no tension. They're totally at peace with each other and with God too. Here, read with me this final beautiful verse, verse 25. Verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It really is a beautiful picture, isn't it? A, a beautiful picture of true marital bliss. Just the way God intended marriage to be. And I dare say it's the kind of marriage we would all love to have. Overflowing with intimacy and trust. But of course, that's just not our reality today, is it? Why not? Why not? Well, because, because we are now on the other side of Genesis chapter 3. We now live on, on this side of the fall. And that makes all of us sinful people, living in a sinful world. You know, we're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. The sad truth is, even our best relationships are now marred by sin. And that can make marriage really hard. And I'm sure that's why the statistics are what they are. 
being married to a sinner can be really tricky. And it's tempting at times to, to throw in the towel. But Jesus challenged people who wanted to change God's original pattern of marriage to suit themselves. Uh, when the, the Pharisees questioned him about divorce, Jesus didn't say, you know what, guys, you're right. You know what, here we are, we're living in the world of Genesis 3, you just go for it. No, instead he referred them back to this passage here in Genesis 2, saying, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Do you get it? Do you, do you see what Jesus does here? He holds up God's original pattern for marriage as the one that we should still be striving for today. So what will this mean for us here today? What, what, what do we see in this first marriage that we who are married ought to be striving for in our own? Well, let's think about six things. Six things. Firstly, firstly, this passage makes it very clear that marriage is ultimately designed by God and for God to fulfill his purposes in the world. Now, that, that means that uh, the mission statement of our marriages should be something like to honour and serve God together. To honour and serve God together. Of course, the implications of that are many. Like, for example, who you choose to marry in the first place. I mean, if you're primarily looking to serve God and honour him in your marriage then it makes absolutely no sense to pursue a life partnership with someone who doesn't love him too. Now, I know that some of you are already married to people that don't share your faith. And I know that you're seeking and working as hard as you can to shine, to shine the light for, a light for Christ in your homes. And let me encourage you, if that, that applies to you, to keep going to keep going with that. But I'm sure that you would agree that marriage to a non-Christian does come with all sorts of extra challenges because you're serving Christ on your own. Now, I also know that there are numerous singles here tonight who have deliberately decided not to date rather than date a non-Christian. And if you're one of them, friend, then know that you have honoured Jesus through your decision. And know that he'll honour you for that too. What's more? What's more, if we view our marriages as being primarily about honouring and serving God, then there will be other positive outcomes too. See, if you end a marriage thinking that it's all about you, expecting you know, to always find happiness from your partner, then you're just asking for trouble. Now, when you look to your spouse to meet all your needs, you're going to be terribly, terribly disappointed. Do you know why? Because that's idolatry. And idols always disappoint. Instead, we need to find our identity and satisfaction ultimately in our creator. Because only then can we end a marriage to, to give and not just get. 
And only then can we enjoy the kind of rich and satisfying marriage God wants us to have. It's like the old triangle analogy. Maybe you've seen it before. You know, we've got, you've got God at the top and you've got husband and wives, you know, down in the bottom corners. And it's when husbands and wives look to God and pursue a relationship with him first and foremost that lo and behold they find themselves growing closer to one another too so what do we married people need to do well we need to see our marriages as ultimately about honoring and serving god not not primarily about making us happy because ironically that's what makes for a rich and satisfying marriage Secondly, secondly, this passage teaches us that God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman who are the same but different. Equal but unique. Equal in, in dignity and worth, but also unique in many ways. And whilst I could say lots and lots on this particular matter, I just want to make one point concerning the husband's role as leader under God. You know, his God-given role of headship in marriage. I know that some people bristle when they hear this idea because sadly headship has been too often abused in a way that grossly distorts God's original intention. Husbands, I hope that you're not abusing your God-given role of headship. Whether it be physically or emotionally or verbally. Brother, your wife has been created in the image of God. She has been created as your equal, a helper as you serve God together. You are expected to respect and treasure her as you seek to lead your family. I love how Bible commentator Matthew Henry describes the significance of Eve's being created from Adam's side. Listen to what he says. He says, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And he's right, isn't he? He's right. I mean, someone with that much hair can't be wrong surely. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are told to model their headship on that of Christ's leadership of the church. And what did Christ do for his bride brothers? He laid down his life for her. That's the kind of loving, self-sacrificial headship we're to display if we're married. Anything else is a distortion of God's original design. It dishonors our Lord And we will one day have to give an account for it. So husbands, let's use our headship as it was designed for the good of our wives and ultimately to glorify our Lord Jesus. Thirdly, thirdly, the next concept we uh, see here in God's original design for marriage is the idea of leaving our parents. You know, when we get married, we're we're to leave our our family of origin uh, and start a new family unit. Of course, in childhood, we're under the authority of our parents. But when we get married, that's no longer the case. Our primary loyalty must be then to our spouse. Now, 
Now, I know that this can be a rather contentious issue for some of us here in, in our church, and, and so let's think about it for a little while. Parents, parents, does this mean that you can't offer advice to your married children? Of course it doesn't. But it does mean that after offering your advice, you respect their decisions, even if you don't agree with them. Adult children, does this mean you're to abandon your parents or treat their advice with contempt? Of course not. The Bible still calls married people to honour their father and mother. But you no longer have to obey them as you did when you were growing up under their authority. See, leaving, le leaving, leaving means we, we aren't overly dependent on our parents' approval anymore. You know, giving them a place in our hearts that should be reserved for our spouse alone. Nor should we relate to our parents in a way that alienates or neglects our spouse. It means never, ever, ever running your spouse down to your parents or letting them run your spouse down. It means making sure that your spouse knows that you've got their back. In other words, it means making your marriage your number one human relationship. Parents, parents, if you truly love your children and want the best for them, as I'm sure you do, you need to take God at his word here. You need to give your married children space to make their own decisions. You are, they are now a new family unit. Love them, yes, be there for them, of course. Pray for them, absolutely. But remember, it's not your place to run their lives anymore. Give them that space, and I can tell you, they will, they will be so grateful, and they will respect you all the more. Fourthly, fourthly, getting married involves uniting with the, the other person. You know, it's the idea of, of sticking to the other per person permanently, you know, of being super glued together. And that means for better or worse. Sometimes at weddings, I, I like to tell the joke about Kevin and Charlene. Uh, when they were getting married, uh, the, the minister asked Kevin those familiar words, you know, do you, Kevin, take Charlene to be your lawful wedded wife? To have and to hold for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live. Kevin took Charlene by the hands and looked deeply into her eyes and answered, yes, 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 no, no, yes, no. <laughs> but that's not what marriage is, is it? No, marriage is a commitment to stick with the other person no matter what. So when I counsel couples planning on getting married, I'm really always very careful to stress this fact that marriage is permanent. It's why I get rather nervous when I occasionally hear talk of prenuptial agreements or um, you know, separate bank accounts, you know, just in case. But, but marriage doesn't have a just in case. My friend, if you're that, uns if you're that unsure, don't get married. There is no back door in marriage. And I've got to tell you, that's actually something that I love about it. I love it. Why? Because there is such security in that. 
You know, even as I get older and uh, rounder and uh, wrinklier and hairier in all the wrong places, uh, I know that... <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I know that even as these things happen, I know that Beth isn't going anywhere. That's, that's wonderful. Even when I'm tired and stressed and not exactly at my best. You know, I know that Beth remembers the vows that we've uh, framed and hung above our bed. And I find that just so reassuring. But I also find the permanence of marriage to be something very motivating too. I mean, if you know that marriage is permanent, then, then you're going to work at it, right? Surely, surely, surely that's the logical thing to do. Just like uh, we're, we're, how people tend to take better care of their, their own homes than, than rental properties. Why is that? Well, because they're much more willing to invest in something if, if they're in it for the long haul, of course. So I reckon this is a really good opportunity to plug the weekend marriage course we're offering here in August at church. And uh, you'll hear lots and lots more about this in the coming weeks, don't worry about that. Uh, but maybe you just want to note those dates for now. And, you know, it will be a great way for us to invest in our marriages if we're married or if we're uh, preparing for marriage. Fifthly, fifthly, this passage also encourages us to pursue oneness in our marriages. You know, that uh, total giving of ourselves to the other person in a way that is deep and profound. And I reckon this has to be one of the biggest challenges many of us face in our marriages today. Uh, where, you know, the busyness of, of children and, and uh, paid work and housework, with all of these things, you know, we can start to feel a little bit, bit more like um, workmates than, than soulmates. But God wants so much more for us in our marriages. And I, I know that this uh, is something that Beth and I have to really keep working hard at. It's why we've um, uh, carved into our schedules time for us to simply be together. To, to enjoy each other's company. Uh, date nights, we call them. It's also why we make time to often uh, read the Bible and pray together. We reckon it's one of the best ways for us to stay close to God and to each other. You know, I told you a little earlier that one in three marriages in Australia will end in divorce. Uh, apparently in America, it's uh, one in two. But do you know what the divorce rate there is among couples that pray together? Well, according to good old Dr. Phil, and I quote, the reported divorce rate among couples that pray together is about one in 10,000. Pretty impressive statistic, even if you reduce it a thousandfold. Yeah, that, that is pretty impressive, isn't it? Seems that couples who pray together stay together. And it makes sense because in prayer we open up our souls to God and to each other. And so it draws us close, it fosters oneness. It takes effort to do it, of course, a lot of effort to keep it up. Especially with the constant demands and pressures of life. But it is totally worth it. But there is another thing that I want to say on this point of becoming one flesh. And that is the fact that it involves a sexual component. Which, which also contributes to, significantly to, this deep oneness. And so we need to make regular sex a priority in our marriages. 
not depriving each other, as our 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 puts it. But notice that I said sex ought to be a priority in our marriages. Friend, if you're not married at this particular point in time, oh, please, please, please don't believe the lies of our culture. You know, the movies and the magazines and the websites that encourage sex whenever and with whomever you please. I hope you can see that God designed sex to bond you to another person in a way that is truly deep and profound. So when we join ourselves sexually to someone outside of a lifelong committed relationship and that relationship doesn't last, it's damaging to everyone, to you, to the other person and to your potential future spouse too. Why? Well, because that, that, that involves a, a ripping apart of the one flesh. And that creates deep and lasting wounds. It's one of the reasons why divorce is always so, so painful. Of course, in Christ, healing and forgiveness can always be found. But friend, please trust God on this one and obey him and keep sex for marriage. And finally, finally in this passage we see that in the beginning Adam and Eve stood before one another naked and unashamed. You know, that beautiful, beautiful picture of marriage before the fall. Now, of course, friends, as sinners today, we're never, ever going to have perfect marriages. There is now no such thing. There'll be times when we hurt each other with our words and actions. There'll be times when we'll be unfaithful in thought and deed. Times when we'll be really rather unlovely. And far from enjoying the intimacy and openness of that first perfect marriage in Edom, we'll want to hide ourselves away from each other. But friends, the gospel teaches us that in Jesus we now have a fresh start with God. At the cross, he has washed away all our guilt and shame. And in the same way that he has redeemed us, he can redeem our marriages too. Friend, as a pastor, I've seen my fair share of marriages in crisis. But I can stand before you here tonight and tell you when couples are willing to humble themselves before God and before each other, when they're willing to take responsibility for their own sin and turn from it, rather than just pointing fingers at each other, when they're willing to, to seek forgiveness and to grant forgiveness. I can stand here before you tonight and tell you, I have seen miracles Walls of anger and frustration tumbling down. Hearts healed. Trust and vulnerability restored. At those moments, friends, I can tell you, I have seen glimpses of Eden. I assure you, it's taken those couples a lot of hard work. But I'm quite sure that not one of them would say that it wasn't worth it. 
They have inspired me to work harder at my own marriage. And I thank them for it. And so, friends, I say let's all strive for that too, hey? Let's all strive for marriages as God intended them, according to the pattern set here in Genesis chapter 2. Knowing that behind us are all the resources of our loving Heavenly Father, the one who gave us this gift of marriage in the first place. Let's turn to him right now, shall we? Let's pray. Well, our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the gift of marriage. We pray that uh, whether we're single or married, we, we would see marriage your way. Oh, please help, help us, Father, to promote marriages that, that focus on serving and honouring you, where we love one another as Christ has loved us. Please give us wisdom and grace as we seek to know what it means to leave our parents, stick together and, and live as one. Father, we pray for the marriages among us that are struggling at the moment. We ask that you would transform them into something beautiful, uh, places of grace and mercy and forgiveness and self-sacrifice. Lord, we all fall short of your perfect plan for sex and marriage in one way or another. Thank you that uh, your forgiveness is real and that you're always willing to help us make a fresh start. Father, as we strive for the kind of marriages you want us to have, we pray that through them the world around us would see that your ways really are the best and that it would lead many to want to know you too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.